Always fun to celebrate baptisms, uh, isn't it, here at Genesis? Uh, we love it. We love celebrating life change. And um, Sorry that we had some audio difficulties if you had uh, trouble hearing, just some of those kids especially, and how important uh, of an event this is for their life. And I just want to stress once again that maybe you came today, and maybe this is something that you've thought about for some time and you've been putting it off. Uh, you haven't missed an opportunity. We'd love to stay after today and give you the opportunity to be baptized. Again, we've got the extra clothes, we've got the extra towels, and uh, we'd love to, to help you do that. And so don't hesitate. We'll, we'd be happy to chat with you after our service today. How, how many of you love to travel? Just got a show of hands, maybe like vacation, love to vacation. I know that with spring break coming up, uh, some of you are working on those plans, already thinking about where you're going to go, thinking about traveling. How how many of you travel for work regularly? Uh, Get out of town. All right. Well, if you travel for fun on vacation or you travel for work, I, I think that I hope that you would agree. I think all of us could agree that there is nothing quite like traveling by airplane. I mean, there really isn't when you think about it. The fact that you can get on a plane uh, in the morning in Indianapolis and be eating lunch in another city, uh, you know, on the same day is really kind of a thrill. And if you travel by plane much, and I know that some of you do that frequently uh, with your job, uh, can you agree that, would you agree that you know and understand the beauty of a direct flight? All right, everybody know what I'm talking about when I say a direct flight? I mean, the direct flight is always preferred, right? In most situations, at least, it's the quickest way to get from point A to point B because if you're going to Orlando to see the mouse, you know, the last thing you want to do is spend a few hours in Dallas, all right? I mean, you want to get to Orlando as quickly as you can and the direct flight, well, it just it's going to get you there and it's going to get you there as soon as possible. And again, if you do this regularly, uh, if you fly regularly, well, then you know the challenges and the frustration with connecting flights, all right? You you know what can happen because of these connecting flights. They present more opportunities for delays and, and cancellations. And who's really got time for that? I mean, especially we're in a hurry sort of people. We're always in a rush. We're, we're destination people. Again, we want to get from point A to point B and spend as little time in between as we can. And so that's why the direct flight is always preferred. Well, we're continuing uh, with the story today. We've challenged everyone here at Genesis to read through the Bible over the course of the year. We're talking about it here on Sundays. And we've been looking at the life of Moses and the people of Israel these past couple of weeks. Uh, Moses spent 40 years as a shepherd in the wilderness. And one day he's out with the sheep and he sees that a bush is on fire, but it's not consumed. And so kind of curious, he goes over to investigate and as he gets closer to the bush, he hears the voice of God and God tells him, he commands him to go to the Pharaoh, uh, the leader of Egypt, the most powerful man in the world at the time, and demand that he let God's people go. And so Moses obeys, but if you've been following along with the story, you know that he somewhat reluctantly obeys. And we we talked about the ten plagues and how Moses led the people out of Egypt. Uh, Last week, Steve, our Carmel campus pastor, talked about the law and the Ten Commandments, the purpose of the tabernacle and the sacrificial system. And hopefully you've had a chance to read along and maybe even read chapter 6 in preparation for today and getting ready for next week, I challenge you to read chapter 7. But the Israelites are free. You know, they're no longer slaves in Egypt. 
They're following Moses. They're out in the wilderness and they're on their way towards the promised land in Canaan. And it seems like it would be a fairly easy journey from Egypt to the promised land. And I want to show you a map here to just kind of give you an idea what's ahead of them and what they're up against. Um, The most obvious path from Egypt to the promised land from left to right was by a road, a popularly traveled road called the Way of the Sea. And it's even referenced in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Again, it was a popularly traveled road. Scholars say uh, and estimate uh, a distance, point A to point B, of about 175 miles. And scenic, too. Uh, And and so Moses and the Israelites must have left Egypt thinking, okay, 175 miles, we can do that, and we'll get some scenery along the way. Well, I want to kind of give you just some context to bring it to our own day to show you a little bit about what this is like. I got onto my phone, and I was on my Maps app, and I, I plugged in. I discovered that the distance from Hamilton County, Noblesville, to be precise, to Columbus, Ohio, is about 186 miles. All right, 186 miles. And, and let's just kind of ask ourselves, what's that going to take you? Well, if you're traveling by car, what, three hours maybe? Three hours without traffic, if you don't run into any problems, if you don't make any stops. But let's ask this. What if you decided to walk it? All right, just, I, now I don't know why you would, all right, but just kind of play along with me if you would. I mean, if you were to make this journey on foot from point A to point B, what that, what's that going to take you? Ten days if you're in really good shape? Uh, 15, you know, maybe 20. I mean, for the Israelites, they've got a 175-mile trip from Egypt to Canaan, from point A to point B. But let's not forget the fact that they've got 2 to 3 million people in their group. So can they do this in a couple of weeks? Probably not. Can they do it in a few weeks? Maybe. Let's just say a month to be safe. But that's not how it went. The direct path, again, from Egypt to Canaan was about 175 miles. But instead of the direct path, God took them on a much different path. And he didn't lead them down the most scenic, most popularly traveled road or even uh, the shortest route. And here's the thing that Moses and all of Israel are going to learn. And that is that our God isn't a big fan of the direct path. And if you haven't experienced it in your own life, Let me just give you a heads up today and remind you too that our God doesn't always choose the direct path for you and me either. Here's what happens. Instead of traveling by the way of the sea, the people cross the Red Sea out of Egypt and God leads them into the Sinai Peninsula. And again, just a map to illustrate this, if you follow the red line to the south here, the Sinai Peninsula, well, this area, it's the Sinai Peninsula. It's where we find Mount Sinai. And uh, again, it's at the very tip of this peninsula. And this is where God gave the people the Ten Commandments. We talked about that last week. They're going to spend a year, about a year in this region. And while many of them thought this year of their life was going to be a tough one, they've got no clue what's ahead of them. The title of chapter 6 in the story is The Wandering. And Sinai is where the wandering begins. And from the lower story perspective, it's a little painful. Uh, It's a dreadful season in the history of Israel. But from the upper story perspective, this time is loaded with purpose. In fact, I like how one pastor says it. Kyle Eidelman says it this way. He calls it a time for detox in the life of the people of Israel. I mean, don't forget, these these people spent 400 years in Egypt, and Egypt was full of false gods and all of these poor influences. And and these gods have a way of leaving an impression, you know, on God's people. And so God's going to use this season in Sinai as a way of getting Egypt out of them. But for now, 
this is the beginning of their wandering in the desert, in the wilderness. And from the lower story perspective, you know, many had to be wondering, even Moses, why God didn't choose the direct path to the promised land. But instead, God's going to lead them around the wilderness for a while. I mean, the real wilderness will become their new reality. And for the sake of what I want to talk to you about today, let's just do this. Um, can we just define, and if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. Can we just define the wilderness as the space between where I've started and the space between, it's just that space between where I've started and where I'd like to be. It's the space between where I started and where I'd really love to be. I mean, these people, they started in Egypt, point A. They, they want to be at the promised land, point B, but there's going to be no direct flight for the Israelites on this particular trip. Now, some of you might say that the wilderness sounds a lot like where you find yourself even today. Again, the space between where you started and where you'd really like to be. It's, it's that space between being single and finally dating someone or being single and finally getting married. It's, it's that space between deciding to start a new family and actually having your first baby. Uh, that wilderness can often be defined in our lives as the space between the diagnosis and remission. It can be defined as that space between graduation and finally finding your first job. I'm going to share with you the story of one person uh, from Genesis Church today. to college, I, uh, I went to get my degree in landscape architecture. Um, I did that because uh, the environment and outdoors in general is just something that's very important to me. Um, design in general is something that's very important to me. And uh, being able to combine um, something that God loves with uh, something that I love and um, be able to use creativity in that. Um, was just incredibly appealing, and uh, that's why I decided to pursue that degree. Um, so when I, whenever I did graduate, I um, worked on portfolios and um, did a little bit of traveling and uh, tried my best to um, get a job right away um, with my degree um, and to just uh, begin my career. was a little bit more difficult than I thought. Um, every architecture firm I spoke to, um, there was a number of them across the country, um, either weren't hiring or just weren't interested in me in general, which was a pretty tough pill to swallow. Um, so uh, I continued living at home um, by the grace of my parents and uh, um, just continued working on that and tried to kept trying to find a job. In the meantime, I started working part-time um, at Keystone Mall. And um, yeah, that's, I guess that's really when it was somewhere in there where trying to find a job in architecture and um, not seeing that come to fruition uh, is when I started to get really frustrated. 
having, uh, not feeling that um, fulfillment, not feeling like I'm doing exactly like what God called me to do. Uh, it's been two years since I graduated with my degree in landscape architecture. Um, I had my my hopes and dreams ahead of me. Uh, and I still haven't uh, seen those those come to come to life yet. Um, I think uh, because of that, um, I still feel like I'm wandering through the wilderness. I think we all can relate in some way, right? I mean, we've all we've all been in the wilderness, and, and you, if you've been there, if you're there today, you know that it's it's a frightening place. Uh, it's a very desperate place. Um, it's lonely. It's a place where often you might pray and feel like you get no response whatsoever. I mean, it really is the space between where you started and where you'd really like to be. It's that it's that space between getting into debt and finally working your way out of debt. It's it's losing a job and finding another. It's, it's that space between saying goodbye to someone that you love forever and the eventual uh, reunion in heaven. We find ourselves in that space more often than we'd like. Now the good news though, the good news is that there's hope. And what I want you to see more than anything today is that our God always has a purpose with the wilderness. And if you find yourself in the wilderness today, God's got a purpose and a plan for it. He's got a purpose and a plan for your life because He doesn't waste time. Our God never wastes time. He doesn't waste your life. And for God, every day and every moment, it matters with you. And like the Israelites, our natural reaction is to see something like the wilderness and call it wasted time. Call it wasted space or wasted land. But I like how Jeff Mannion calls the wilderness fertile ground. He says, really, when you think about it, it's fertile ground for growth. I mean, the wilderness is where God does some of his greatest work in transformation in us, and it's where we learn things like trust. I I, want to show you uh, how God's leading and working in the Israelites since they left Egypt. Picking it up in Exodus 13, starting in verse 17, it says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God says if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. Verse 18. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Now skipping over to verse 20, it says, After leaving Sukkoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. And then by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or by night. I just want you to see how God's leading. All the way from Egypt, God is leading His people. And He's not necessarily going to take the shorter path with them, but instead He guides them by day with a cloud and a pillar of fire by night. And so He's out in front of these people, and He is the one who leads them into the wilderness, which again reminds us, reminds me, that our God always has a purpose for the wilderness. Now, what's His purpose for the wilderness with these Israelites? And, well, really, why the wilderness for you and me? Why? It's about learning to trust Him more than anything. It's about learning to trust our God. I mean, 
I mean, that, that's what life's all about when you think about it. That's what following Jesus is all about. It's to be able to say that I trust you in everything, in the good and the bad. I mean, God has a purpose for the wilderness. It's where he teaches us things like dependence. And it's where he does some of his greatest work of transformation. Again, remember, the wilderness is fertile ground for growth. And more than anything, I believe the wilderness is a lesson for trust. I mean, for Israel, God's going to teach these people how to trust Him in all things. And I think that's what He's got in mind for you and me too. Picking it back up in, in Exodus 13 again, verse 21. Just hear it again, how it says, By, the day, by, by day the Lord went ahead of them. He, he did the same at night. And then over in 20, verse 22, it says, Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Again, God has a plan. And his ultimate plan with the Israelites is to get them to the promised land, but not yet. And it had to be frustrating. I mean, imagine yourself as a part of this crowd, what it was like to to follow this cloud during the day and to see that all of a sudden the cloud turned and just started heading north or south. You don't want to go that direction. I mean, the promised land's to the north. And so you can imagine just the confusion and even the chaos when they started heading south and... They really should have been going north. This created really the great crisis in the book of Exodus. And as you read, I mean, the question really becomes, you know, will they trust God when they don't understand? Or will they trust Him when following Him in a completely other direction doesn't make sense? I mean, will God's people trust Him in the wilderness? Well, it doesn't take very long before their repeated cry becomes, are we there yet? And if you're parents... I mean, you know that question so well, right? I mean, any trip that you make, you don't even need to get out of the subdivision, you know, and your kids are already asking that question. I mean, that's why the DVD player is so beautiful, all right? I mean, you know it was a parent that came up with the concept of a DVD player in the van. It's brilliant, but we're always in a hurry. I mean, God's people are always in a hurry, and we're in a hurry too, aren't we? I mean, have you ever noticed how we're always in a hurry? We're always in a rush. Quick test just by a show of hands, to see if you're a rushed, in a hurry sort of a person. So just by a vote, let's be honest, let me me just, I'll ask you a few questions and you just kind of see how you're doing. Question number one, have you ever cut through a gas station parking lot in order to avoid a red light? So that guy had his hand up so fast. I mean, all right, so just kind of in a hurry, right? We're always in a hurry, even to get our hand up. Um, Let let, let me ask you, what's the line? All of Check out St. Walmart in the air. Check and fake their per- Yeah, right. You're ninth like the devil like that. Who ever to G time ride that free? Is the spec eighthly like, oh, that you get clock. You easily keep just talk slow. Like, I mean, it's just like you want to finish their sentences for them. Like, you know, let's pick this up. Let's move on. You know, we're all getting old here. I mean, right? Because we're always in a hurry. You know, more than we realize, or maybe we realize, we're just always in a hurry. We're direct flight kind of people. We want to get from point A to point B as quickly as we can and eliminate as much time in the middle as possible. But unfortunately, God's not like that. He's not in a hurry like we are. I mean, we see this in the story of Abraham. I mean, Abraham was told that he'd be the father of a great nation. Decades later, he finally had a son. Joseph had a dream that he would rule, but ended up a slave and then a prisoner. It took 13 years, I think, before he really started to see things happening in his life. Moses spent 40 years in the desert before God finally called him out and sent him back to Egypt. We're going to study the life of David in a few weeks. Samuel anointed him king. It would take 20 years before he'd finally get the crowd. God's not in a hurry. 
like we are. I mean, He has a purpose for the wilderness. And a lot of the times it's about waiting on Him. And if you find yourself in the wilderness today, please know that He's not so concerned about rushing you through like you are. I mean, He's not nearly as concerned about where you're going as much as He's concerned about who you're becoming in the wilderness. It's where He teaches us things like trust and dependence. And that's what He's doing with His children here in Israel. There's a great verse, and you probably know it, but it's one of my favorites. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 that says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not a portion. Put all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. I try and make sense of things all the time, but again, God's not in a hurry like I am. And then He just says, In all your ways, submit. It means to trust, lay down, surrender, and He will make your path straight. Well, for the people of Israel... He's going to be doing some work on them in this journey before straightening out their path. They're going to have plenty of time to think and reflect in the wilderness, but God's not going to waste that time. I mean, He's going to really work on their hearts. Well, God spent a year with the people of Israel in Sinai. One year. And the irony is that they could have made this journey from Egypt to the Promised Land in about a month, but it's been a year And you'd think maybe now they're ready for their new home. Well, there's an interesting reference point in the book of Deuteronomy uh, over in Deuteronomy 1-2 where it just says kind of as a matter of fact that it takes 11 days to travel. Now, by foot, remember, they didn't have megabus or anything like that back then, but to travel from Horeb, which is another term for Sinai on this occasion, to Kadesh Barnea, which is at the very south end of the Promised Land. It's almost like the gateway into the Promised Land by the Mount Seir Road. And so if Moses is asking for directions at this time, you know, wants to know how to get to the Promised Land, you know, somebody's going to say, yeah, turn right on Mount Seir Road and go at about 11 days. You can't miss it, all right? I mean, that's what he's up against at this moment, but... But do you know how long it's going to take Israel to make this journey? I mean, so far they've been in the wilderness for about a year. It's going to take another 39 years before they finally, once and for all, go into the promised land. That's 40 years total wandering in the wilderness. Now, I was thinking that maybe the subtitle of this message should be when your 11-day trip turns into a 40-year one. I mean, the GPS says to expect 11 days. 39 years later, they're going to pull into the drive in their new home. And reminds me of a story that I came across this past week. I don't know if it's true, but it's clever. Uh, it's a story of a Belgian woman who drove for nearly 1,500 kilometers through six countries before she finally realized that her car navigation system had failed. All right, true story. And, and, and then she had to turn around and drive all the way back. But, but it gets better than that. The trip was meant to be a 61-kilometer trip, all right? Not 1,500 miles, but she took a wrong turn, ended up 1,500 miles away in Croatia, all right? The UK's uh, Daily Mail reported. It's believed that she drove through France, Germany, Slovenia on the way. She passed traffic signs in different languages, stopped to refuel her car several times to get some sleep, but didn't stop to question the TomTom GPS device she was using until 60 hours later before she finally realized she had taken a wrong turn and had to turn around and go back. I'm just thinking it might be time to surrender the driver's license. Like if you're that dependent on your GPS device... But 39 years, 39 years for the Israelites in the wilderness. And again, we ask, why the wilderness? I mean, why the delay for these people? And why does God allow people like you and me to spend so much of our lives in the wilderness? Well, the other thing is that sometimes we just get lost. 
I mean, sometimes that's the only explanation. I mean, it's easy to get lost in the wilderness. Now, will God lead you into the wilderness? Yeah, He does that sometimes. I mean, we see that here with Israel. He did that with Elijah and Jesus and Saul before he became Paul. But sometimes we get lost. Sometimes we get stranded in the wilderness. And it's really on us. I mean, it's on me. I mean, we choose our paths. I mean, when you have free will, you know, and you make destructive choices, sometimes you have to, we have to live with the consequences of those decisions. And those consequences tend to show their ugly head when you're in the wilderness. And I'm sure that many of the Israelites thought they were ready for the promised land, but they're not. And they're ready to come out. And if you read chapter 6, if you read chapter 6 for this week, then you probably got a front row seat for all of the whining and complaining and the moaning and the groaning from these people. Because, you know, even with all the work that God was doing, I mean, sure, he parted the Red Sea, but someone says, I sprained my ankle as we were walking through. I mean, you know, everyone's got a reason for complaining. And most of the time it's about food. And I want to show you a few verses here in Numbers 11. And I'm going to read for you from the message. Uh, this is on page 72 uh, in your storybook. But Numbers 11, 4, 5, and 6 just kind of gives us an idea of some of the complaining that's going on. It says this, that the riffraff, I love that word. Uh, in other translations, it's the rubble. It's a, a portion of the people in Israel. It says, among the people had a craving, and soon they had the people of Israel whining. Why can't we have meat? I mean, we ate fish in Egypt and got it for free to say nothing of the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and onions and garlic, but nothing tastes good out here. All we get is manna, manna, manna. I mean, can you hear it? I mean, you've got to read it like that sometimes. But, but I mean, you just see the waning and the complying, even though God has provided for them in the wilderness since day one. I mean, manna came from God. We don't know a lot about it, but they could kind of make it into a bread. And he provided it for them every day to nourish them, and they were sick of it. And so here they are complaining, forgetting that they were once slaves in Egypt, but now at least they're free. And God led them through the Red Sea, and he protected them from Egypt's army, and he's provided water and food all along the way. And and just a few start complaining, but you quickly see how it spreads throughout the entire population. And that's just how complaining works, isn't it? I mean, you see that in your own family. You see it in your own home. It only takes one person complaining, and all of a sudden it spreads. It just takes a couple of coworkers complaining about something or a couple of teammates or a dozen or so people in a church complaining and pretty soon it catches on. It's like an infection. Complaining is toxic. I mean, that kind of an attitude can ruin a home, an office, and even a church. I mean, people who complain just suck the life out of everybody else. And, and so the people of Israel, they're on this long journey and there's this whining and complaining about food and and and. and, and you know, it started even as they're pulling out of Egypt, but God just keeps providing. But it's almost like, and I want to show you this, and we really probably don't even have time, but I'm going to show it to you anyways, because it's almost like God just kind of can reach a limit. You know, you reach a limit as a parent, God can even reach a limit maybe. And so we, we see that here in Numbers 11. You know, again, they're, they're registering their complaints to Moses and to God about this food situation. And so here's what God commands Moses to say to them in Numbers 11, 18 to 20. He says, consecrate yourselves. Moses is saying this to the people. Yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, when you will, eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If we only had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. And you will not eat it for just one day or two days or five, ten, or twenty days, but for a whole month, and then get this, until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. Now, have you ever heard the term meat sweats? 
like that you can eat so much meat that you actually start to sweat. This is the first occasion of the meat snots, all right, that you eat so much meat that it just starts coming out of your nose. But then he says, because you've rejected the Lord. You know, sometimes our complaints before our God are really like saying, God, I think I know better than you. Or God, I I think I wonder if I would be better off without you. And what's God doing? He's teaching them perspective. I mean, it's a lesson of trust. And most of the time, what our complaining, our attitude needs is we need, we need perspective too. I mean, we lose sight of how good we have it and how blessed and fortunate we really are and all of the ways that God provides and what could really help is some perspective. I mean, ask the team that just returned from Haiti how their perspective has changed. I mean, sometimes God has to take you to a place like Haiti to really show you what you have in a place like Hamilton County. John Ortberg says that what would really change our lives more than anything else is if we could look at our different situations, situations that we would typically label as unfair and practice saying four little words. It could be worse. So like the next time that your kids are driving you absolutely crazy, it could be worse. Or when you lose your job or when you're complaining about the job that you currently have that you don't really like and you don't want to be there, it could be worse. Or when you climb out of the shower and you really don't want to catch a glimpse in the mirror, but you do anyways, and and maybe you see what your body has become, it could be worse. Or the next time you're thinking about complaining about your husband or about your wife or about your parents, it could be worse. But we don't do that. I mean, so often we're like, it's not fair. I deserve better. I want this or I want that. I mean, you know, it's easy to look at the Israelites and think, I mean, mixed up, ungrateful group of people I would have never complained about. Like, like really? I mean, have you, ever, have you ever had leftovers a couple of nights in a row? I mean, and how quickly you get tired of leftovers? We could all use some perspective to really see how blessed we truly are. And the sad reality is that a whole generation of Israelites will die in the wilderness and they'll never get the opportunity to see the promised land. I mean, 39 more years are going to finish them off because they couldn't get it, they never figured it out, and they got lost in the wilderness. And some of you are here today and you'd quickly label your situation right now as the wilderness. And if you did that, you'd be right. But if I could just say one thing to you, I'd say this, don't get lost in the wilderness. You don't have to. I'm not saying it's where you got to be or even where you want to be. I mean, you don't don't have to love it. But don't get lost in the wilderness. Again, we're direct flight sort of people. We want to get from point A to point B as quickly as we can with as little time in the middle as possible, but let's not forget that God does some of His greatest work in us when we're in the wilderness. And He's got a purpose for it with you. Um, He's not given up on you. He's not all of a sudden turned His attention to someone else, but, but maybe He's trying to teach you trust or about dependence. And before moving on from here, He wants to be certain that all of your heart and all of your focus is on Him and no one else. I don't know if you, uh, if you know anything about Johnny Erickson Tata. She's got a great story. She's been around for a while. She 
was in an accident when she was 17 years old and uh, a diving accident, paralyzed as a result of it from the neck down. And she's got an incredible story of faith and trials and time in her own personal wilderness. And while she was still very fresh out of this accident and trying to come to terms with the reality of her new life, uh, she describes how she would go to church and she would go to church in a wheelchair. And the problem with being in a wheelchair, she found, was that at a certain point in her church's liturgy every week, the priest would invite people, would ask people to get down on their knees. And, And it was in those moments that she was reminded that she never again would be able to do something like that. Well, once she was at a conviction or a convention, a convention where the speaker again invited everyone to get down on their knees and to just begin praying before God, and everyone did, except Johnny. And she describes how just the sight of the auditorium, everyone on their knees, brought her to tears in that moment. But, but it wasn't out of self-pity. She wasn't crying because of her disability. She explains that she cried out of the sight of hundreds of people on their knees before God and how it was so beautiful. And she just called it a picture of heaven. And she later wrote this. She said, sitting there, I was reminded that in heaven, I will be free to jump up, dance, kick, and do aerobics. And sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees and I will first quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. Friends, that's what God wants for each of us. For you and me. This attitude of total surrender. Eyes completely focused on Him. Trusting in the good and the bad. You're going to spend time in the wilderness if you're not there right now. And I know some of you are, well, you're just in the middle of where you were and where you'd really like to be. Don't get lost. But maybe ask yourself today, what's God trying to teach me? And what's it going to take for me to get all of my heart and all of my eyes and all of my attention and my focus completely on Him? To worship Him. To glorify Him above everything else. Here's what we're going to do. As we wrap up, we want to just give you time to respond in whatever way God's leading you today. Our band's going to lead us in a couple of songs. Uh, We just want to invite you to worship in whatever way you feel led today. If you want to stand, you're more than willing to do that. You know, put your arms up in the air. Go for it. Uh, Maybe you just want to stay in your seat and reflect. Keep your eyes closed and just listen. Maybe it's just to read and reflect to the lyrics of these songs. I don't know. We don't, I know we don't have a lot of space, but maybe for you, maybe you need to get on your knees here today. You're invited to do that. But let's take this time and just say before our God, hey, in spite of my circumstances right now, my eyes and my heart are on you and I'm trusting you today.